right? For those of you who are left, you know, uh, please take your Bible and let's turn to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 19. Matthew 11, 16 through 19 today. And we're going to be looking at some other passages of Scripture as we go along the way, but that's where our main text is today. I want to start by quoting uh, Dr. Craig Keener when he said this, When we can influence our culture from within without compromise, we should do so. When the culture becomes so hostile to our master, of course he's talking about Jesus, that we must stand as witnesses outside of the culture, let us do so without regret. Uh, the culture presents many different issues to us, and sometimes it's easy to stand in the culture or with them, and sometimes it is not. And uh, Dr. Keener is pointing that out to us. Now, this really fits both of the ministry descriptions of John the Baptist and of Jesus Christ. Jesus influenced his culture in his day from within that culture. He lived with them, he ate with them, he went to synagogue with them, he walked with them within his culture wherever he could. And among the people, he was there. And he was attempting to reach them with the good news of the kingdom and that he was the Messiah. And he also stepped outside of his culture to say what needed to be said at times, and it wasn't always easy. John, at this time in our passage, is in prison. And we've been talking about him for a while because uh, he is ahead of these verses that we're in today. And uh, he asked, uh, the Lord asked, who did you come out to see when you came to see John? We answered that. And we'll talk about some of that in just a minute. John's in prison at this time, but he has proven that he will stand for Jesus against the culture no matter what it would cost him. A price that John apparently was willing to pay. The question is going to be today, are we willing to pay uh, that kind of a price to stand outside of our culture and stand up for Jesus Christ? Uh, the culture is not always open to what we have to say. John and Jesus both knew that they had been sent to a culture to whom it was said by Isaiah the prophet these words. And if you want to follow with me, uh, I'm going to go over to uh, Matthew, uh, and I'm going to be in chapter 13. <clears throat> and I want to look at uh, verses Matthew 13, 14, and 15. Matthew 13, 14, and 15. Now this is right out of Isaiah. And it's talking about the culture that Jesus was in in that day. It says, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah, the prophet, is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. So what's the culture that Jesus and John was sent to? A culture that cannot hear and they cannot understand. You will keep hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear and they have closed their eyes, otherwise they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return, and I would heal them. So Isaiah predicted hundreds of years about Jesus' culture before they were even born and said this is the kind of people that Jesus is going to minister to. Look, look at them, they've got eyes, but they can't see anything like what Jesus is doing. Uh, look at them, they have ears, but they don't seem to hear what Jesus is saying, and that's the problem. So last week, he asked the question uh, about whoever has ears to hear, let him hear, or made the statement. And now he asked this question today, what is he going to compare his present generation to? What am I going to compare this generation to is the issue. And it seems to me uh, 
uh, that his answer fits well with our own generation today. What would God compare our generation to today? It's going to be a lot like what he compared that generation to those many years ago. I want to go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 33 for a minute. 2 Chronicles 33.10. You can find that easily because it's right after 1 Chronicles. Thank you. <laughs> Where we read these words about an ancient king. Yahweh spoke to Manasseh and his people but they paid no attention. Yahweh spoke to Manasseh, the most wicked king that ever ruled God's people. And he also ruled longer than any other king in Israel. 55 years Manasseh ruled, and he was wicked. He was a Yahweh hater. He hated God. He went against God. But sometime, not right now, but you might want to read on in this passage, and you'll find out that when the Lord sent him away into captivity, he started to come to his senses, and he actually repented of his sins, and God actually took him back and let him rule over his people because he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Interesting. This man uh, would have been nice for Israel to have him wiped out sometime in that 55 years so they didn't have to put up with him for all that time. God left him there, and then he changed his heart. You never know when somebody's going to have a change of heart where God is concerned. If it can happen for Manasseh, it can happen to others. But that's kind of like our generation. The word of God is going out in various churches all over the land, but people are not paying attention. So Jesus is going to pick this up in Matthew 11, where we're at today. And I want to start in verse 16. We're going to go down through verse 19. So Jesus is talking to the crowd, and he says this in verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? So imagine you're standing in the crowd, uh, there's a big crowd around, and Jesus looks at the crowd and says, what am I going to compare you to, that, this generation? What am I going to compare you to? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children and say, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Then Jesus goes on to talk about John and his own ministry. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man, so Jesus speaking about himself, came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, he's a glutton, a gluttonous man, and a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors, and in the original Greek it says, and irreligious Jews. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. I want to break this down. Let's go back to verses 16 and 17, and what we're going to learn first of all is this. People can be disgruntled with any of the attempts God uses to give them eternal life. People can be absolutely disgruntled by anything we can come up with where we're going to share Jesus Christ with them. Uh, they are capable of not liking what we're doing. And this is the case where Jesus is today in this text. Now, we're on the heels of Jesus' command, uh, and that would be in verse 15, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, everybody pretty much, unless there's been some problem in birth or development, everybody has ears. And the Lord means for us to use those ears, not only to hear his word, but then to do his word. It doesn't do any good. It's not counted as hearing if we just hear the noise, but we don't act on it. That's not hearing in the Bible. And so Jesus said, if you have ears to hear, you should listen to what is being said and act on what is being said. 
So Jesus knows in this generation he is speaking to the spiritually deaf. They can't hear anything that the Bible has to say and what he has to say. Spiritually, uh, ears that don't work is what they have. They're not hearing what he's talking about, and they're not taking action on it. Remember that he's speaking to a, a large gathering at this time. I don't know how big the crowd was, but there was lots of people there. Uh, here's a man who's everybody has come to hear him talk, and he's been teaching, and he's been preaching. And this man looks at the crowd that gathered to hear him and said, if you have ears to hear, you should hear. And then he says, what should I compare you people to? What should I compare this crowd to? Now, you can imagine people could be saying, hey, you better be careful what he says here uh, because we, we may, you know, get upset with him or something like that. But the crowd includes those who have been unwilling to accept John as being the spirit and the power of Elijah, as it says in Luke 1.17. They haven't, they haven't gotten to that point where they can accept that. If they would have accepted it, they would have listened to John. If they'd have listened to John, they would be listening to Jesus and they would be coming to faith in Christ. They have not accepted the fact that he came to clear the way for Messiah, to get them ready with repentant hearts. Now, some did. Some people did repent. Uh, not everybody, but some did. And uh, some of those are going to turn up in Acts chapter 2 when Peter gives his sermon, and 3,000 people in Jerusalem come to know Christ as their Savior and trust Christ. So it's not like John didn't do anything, but the nation certainly didn't turn. The whole nation certainly didn't do what was right. So in verse 16, the first part of that, but what shall I compare this generation to? What should I say they are like? Now, he just said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. But he adds to that, to what shall I compare this generation? So remember, these people are all just standing there waiting to hear what Jesus is going to say. Jesus is apparently not too excited about the prospects of salvation for this current generation. Why? Because what Isaiah said about them is true. They have ears, but they don't work spiritually. They're not hearing anything spiritually. Uh, they, they have the ability to go out and do it, but they can't hear it. And Isaiah prophesied that's what would happen. And he already knows that scripture. He's the one that quotes it in Matthew 13, uh, which was taken from Isaiah. So he confronts them with the truth about their spiritual heart. And their spiritual heart is dark. A dark heart is not a spirit, of, spirit that is taken in the light of truth. It still doesn't know the truth. And I want you to stop and think about this. I'm trying to set up a scene, okay? They came to hear Jesus talk. Now Jesus is going to say something confrontational to them. And he's going to say, what shall I compare you to? I don't know what they were thinking. Maybe they said, well, you probably compare us to a group of angelic beings, you know, that were that good. No, it's not going to happen that way. Jesus confronts the people that he's trying to reach. Sometimes in our day and age, we live with a Jesus that people think never confronts anybody, never says they're in sin, never calls people account to their sin, never does anything that would disrupt anybody or make anybody mad. And that's the Jesus of our culture. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. It is not the Jesus that this book is talking about. America made up her own Jesus, and it's not the Jesus of the Bible. You can't be saved by the American Jesus. It has, to be, it has to be the Jesus of the Bible. I wonder what you think about this. Do you think that people like to hear from you or me their failings? Do you think people enjoy hearing about their failings, that is, the things that are wrong with them? And do you wonder if Jesus knows that people will get upset with what he says? Uh, there's a passage in Matthew 15, if you want to turn over there for a minute. 
Matthew 15, 12. Jesus had just got through saying some things that the religious leaders got upset about. The disciples weren't sure that he realized, hey, you upset the religious leaders and need to be more careful, maybe is what they're saying. But it says in verse 12, the disciples came and said to him, uh, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? <laughs> and you just want to say, well, hang on, hang on, people. Because when he gets done with you in Matthew chapter 23, it'll be very clear what he thinks of the religious leaders of his day. Jesus confronted people, and he confronted people with their blindness, with their deafness, and with their sin. And today we've been so beat down, we're kind of afraid to say that because we don't want to lose friends, and we don't want people to not, not appreciate us being around anymore, or not be our friends, or not like us. And I just wonder, uh, let's deal with this question. Have you or I, let me throw myself in this mix too, okay, have you ever withheld the truth from somebody? I mean, uh, the truth of what this book's teaching and what it says. Have you ever withheld the truth purposely because you didn't want people mad at you and you didn't want them to stop being your friend? Have you ever just held on to something and say, no, I should say something about this. It's wrong. It's not biblical. They're not doing the right thing. But I don't want to ruin my friendship. I don't want them to think less of me by pointing out their sin because they could get mad. And then if that's ever happened, did you ever think of it this way? Do you and I ever consider what our friend Jesus Christ thinks when we do that with people? You think he didn't hear? You think he wasn't there? Was Jesus there when he wanted you to stand up for what was right and you said, no, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to lose this friend. I don't want to irritate anybody. I want to be a nice guy. And so Jesus is standing there. He knows you have the truth. I mean, he's there spiritually. He knows you have the truth. He knows it should be said. And you say, nah, I'm not going to do that. Do we ever consider that our friend Jesus is watching? What does he think when we withhold the truth that he has given us? Do we ever say, well, he is, he's Jesus. He'll get over it. I mean, he's God. He can get over it. He, he understands. Or do we say, because of his understanding of the situation, the circumstances, he knows it wasn't good for me to confront this person at this time. He wouldn't, me, he wouldn't want me to lose a friend just because I stood up for the truth of what he said in his word, would he? It's ridiculous, isn't it? Uh, when we go to pull the punches, when we go to pull, pull back on what God says to somebody, now we should speak the truth in love, right? I mean, that's the way it should be. But when we, when we hold back, when we don't say what Jesus wants us to say, just stop for a minute and maybe just imagine if Jesus is standing there, which he, he is there present, you say, Jesus, is it okay if I don't tell this person the truth? See what he says. <laughs> I, think, I don't think it is okay. On verse 16b, here's the comparison. Jesus uses the illustration of children in that day playing in the common marketplaces, uh, which would have been a common sight today. Uh, I kind of get, uh, I wonder what happened between when I was a kid and we have kids today. When you walk in a Walmart or some toy store or something and the kids are pulling stuff off the shelves and playing with it in the aisles and they're riding scooters up and down, I think, I didn't think that was acceptable when I was a kid. Why are you doing it, you know? They're everywhere. They're playing. That's what they do in a store. And I think Jesus chose the marketplace as his illustration on purpose. Well, what's in a marketplace? There's a good variety of people there. There's all kinds of people at the marketplace. Also, uh, the marketplace is where there's a variety of goods being sold. There's a lot of things people can choose from. 
If I go over here and I see this guy has some mangoes, I want some mangoes, but over here, uh, this guy has them a little cheaper and they look a little better, where am I going to go? I'm going to make up my mind. I'm going to pick and choose from what's available. And Jesus said, it's like kids playing in a marketplace, okay? What's at the marketplace? Lots of people, lots of choices. And Jesus is really talking about, I want people to get the message that I have, that it's about salvation. And some of them are choosing Judaism without Christ. Some of them may be choosing some other cult uh, that, that went around in those days. And it's like a marketplace. And the world is like a marketplace. And we're in the middle of the marketplace yelling out, hey, we have something for you. And by the way, it's free and it's real and it's the best there is. Well, it's the marketplace. Jesus calls out the truth in the spiritual marketplace. So let's think that way. And there are people rejecting his salvation for other so-called ways to God or other so-called gods. And I think the illustration is a good one. It fits. The kids are calling out to other children in this marketplace to play with them, whatever they are playing. And I can just hear them yelling, hey, come over here and play this. I want, I want to play this. And it's normal to see kids doing and saying the following. I don't want to play that. I want to play something different. You come over here and play this. No, I want to play this. So they can get into arguments, okay? Verse 17a. The children played the flute. Now, what's happening here is there's two different kinds of music being played. And uh, verse 17a says, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. So apparently, whatever they played on the flute was dancing music. And then that didn't make them happy, so we sang a dirge. And you did not mourn. So they played a song that would be for mourning, like the funeral. And they wouldn't mourn. And that's, that's what we need to understand here. There's a comparison. And Jesus uses that illustration of children playing in the marketplace to be about a spiritual issue. And he's talking to this crowd that came to hear him talk. I think he chose this on purpose because the marketplace has a variety. And the world that we live in has a variety of gods and a variety of rights and wrongs. We think there's only one God. We think there's only one true God. But the world is hit with all kinds of things on the God menu. And so Jesus calls out the truth to the spiritual marketplace where people are rejecting his call to salvation. They have ears, but they cannot hear. The kids call out, and the kids uh, that are there don't want to do what they want to do. So the children played the flute, but the others did not dance. Now, there is a common word for dance here in the Greek text, and it's uh, not indicating really any certain kind of music they were playing. However, it is culturally true that this type of uh, music would be played at a dance uh, for a wedding, uh, but not always. So it's just good music that they could dance to. Okay, we have one on this side, a flute playing, and you can dance. That's a joyous thing. And these would have been uh, joyful dances at a wedding if they played this music. Jesus may represent this because of the teaching of the marriage supper of the Lamb uh, that he taught in his day. And I want to read that. So if you want to go to Matthew 22 with me, it's about a king. And he's inviting people to the supper of the king. And you've read it before, and we'll study it again when we get there. But here's what it says. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his sons. And he sent out his slaves to call all those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. 
Again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I prepared my dinner and my oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and they went their own way. It's almost like their ears can't hear anything. One went to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. Now we understand that God is talking about sending his prophets to the people, and uh, no one had time for them. In fact, they, they took time to kill them, but they had no other time to listen to them. Verse 7, but the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their cities on fire. So the judgment of God. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you invite there, invite to the wedding feast. So those slaves went out into the streets, and they gathered together all that they found, both evil and good, at the wedding, and the wedding hall was filled with the dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man who was there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. He's out of place for some reason. What's the reason? And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness in a place there where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, a picture of hell. For many are called, but few are chosen. The point is the people that were supposed to come didn't come. They didn't have time for God. And so the audience out there is always mixed. And that's what Jesus is, is dealing with here. It says they played the flute and no one danced. Okay, you don't like flute music, you don't like that, you don't like the dancing, you don't like the joy. How about we uh, do a funeral dirge for you? And so they're going to, the children in 17b, they sing a dirge. That's uh, with a funeral. But the response of the other children was to refuse to mourn. See, in those days it was customary that if you had a funeral procession going on, anybody on the street who happened to be there when you went by are supposed to join in the morning, even if they don't know you. And they weep and they mourn and they, they feel for you as you go by. And that's what's supposed to happen. And they expected bystanders to get involved in the funeral procession, but these kids weren't, weren't involved at all. Hard as the children tried, the flute or the dirge, no one listened and got involved. And Jesus says, that's you guys. That's this generation. I'm sure they weren't happy with him. It sounds like our generation as well. Uh, they don't like anything that we do to introduce them to the name of Jesus. And it's getting harder and harder. And I just watched somebody got in trouble with the government in Australia because uh, they, uh, they stood up against some people that were coming against them. I don't, know how, I don't know what the problem was. They sent the police there. And they said they're part of a radical group of pre-tribulational, pre-millennial believers. Oops, <laughs> that's us, right? Note that Jesus has set up what we call in a figure of speech called a merism. A merism is where you mention the two opposite extremes and he wants you to include everything in between there. So it'd be like day and night. It just means everything between day and night, which is everything. Uh, it could be good and bad, everything that's good and everything that's bad. Here he says, we played the flute on the one hand for happiness and celebration and then we played the dirge, and you didn't like any of it. And nothing else we've done has, has been something that you like. 
And so there's two extremes to include all that comes in between. God is trying to reach our world. God uses different ministries and different ministers, and you're all ministers of the gospel. If you know Jesus Christ, he uses you. We have different personalities, different likes, different things going on with us, and some people like us and others don't, and some that don't like us, somebody else in the church they might like, and our job is to spread the gospel, but sometimes they don't care about anything that we say or do. Verse 18, Jesus says, let me tell you what I'm talking about here. Let's get out of the parable and tell you what's really going on. We learn here that John practiced God-instructed abstinence, and the people concluded that he had a demon, John the Baptist. John came in abstinence mode, chosen by God for him. Uh, he, he didn't make that up on his own in Luke 1.15. It says of John the Baptist... For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, yet while in his mother's womb. John had the indwelling of the Spirit of God before he was even born. And uh, he was under what we would call a Nazarite vow, uh, so to speak. It doesn't say anything about his hair length. A Nazarite could never cut their hair. He doesn't say that, but no alcohol. So he's an abstainer. Uh, today, my, I tell people, you know, I'm a teetotaler. I don't, I don't drink alcohol, and that's what that means. He dressed like Elijah. Look at Matthew chapter 3 and verse 4. See, people were supposed to notice that, Matthew 3, 4. Now, John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Now, you go back to uh, the person that he represents and came in the spirit and power of, 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 8, and we run into a description of Elisha. The king wants to know who was this uh, prophet who did this in this context here. You can read it later if you want to. And they answered him, he was a hairy man with a leather girdle about his loins, and he said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. He knew exactly. John came looking like him, had the same spirit as him, had the same message as Elijah, except with Jesus Christ. And they refused to believe that he was any good. They thought, he's, he's got a demon. He's demon-possessed. He would fit the conservative crowd, you would think, because he doesn't drink. And, and the abstainers in the crowd and the no-frills people in the crowd, you'd think that he would fit with them. But they didn't listen to him either. They didn't recognize, hey, God sent Elijah to us in the spirit and power uh, embodied in John the Baptist. And we didn't listen. This resulted in people believing that he was driven inside by a demonic spirit. He was possessed, which isn't really a biblical term. He was, he was uh, uh, demonized. And this, this of a man that the Holy Spirit of God indwelt from the time he was conceived in the womb. Mistaking, my friends, the Holy Spirit for a demon is a fatal mistake in spirituality. It is a fatal mistake to think that what was being done was by a demon and not by the Spirit of God, because John carried the message of eternal life. And if you brush him off and say he's just got a demon, you're not going to listen to him, and you're going to pay dearly for that. So the Father gave this type of ministry to John in order to reach people, and they don't seem to care. Jesus, in verse 19a, uh, came in a more celebratory mission, and they accused him of unbridled passions and sinful behavior. So John comes one way in abstinence, and uh, he's very conservative. Jesus comes, he's a little more, more celebratory. In fact, what it says is, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Uh, that doesn't mean he ever got drunk, that he would never do that. 
But he came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and irreligious Jews. John represented the dirge of the illustration, and Jesus represents the dancing. What did Jesus get from the mission style that the Father gave to him? Well, the unbelievers concluded that this guy is just a glutton. Every time we see him, he's at some tax collector's house eating or something. He's a drunkard. They meant by that a fool. And he's the friend of the wrong kind of people. He hangs out with the wrong kinds of crowds, uh, people that are sinners and irreligious Jews. Thus, the crowds, as Dr. Blomberg pointed out, lamented John's asceticism, and they berated Jesus' indulgences. None of what they came up with was true. Jesus is no glutton. Jesus is no drunkard. But they persisted in it. They wouldn't give it up. John and Jesus represent the two extremes of the diversity in approaches in ministry that God sends people with. John on the absent side, Jesus on the more celebratory side, and everything in between that God uses to try to reach people. Maybe there'll be some people here on Wednesday night who don't know Jesus as their Savior, and they're going to hear about how Christ was talked about in the Passover when Avi comes to share with us, and they might trust Christ. And they needed just that to see, and that would touch them, and God uses that, but not everybody will respond to that. Some people respond to different things. So anyway, uh, we find out here, uh, as Dr. Blomberg points out, John was the ascetic and Jesus uh, the indulger, if you will. None of what they came up with about John was true. They should have seen who he was and heard what he had to say, but they didn't. So this is a merism of those ministries. No matter what they did, no matter how they ministered, Jesus notes that people are not being pleased with the message of free salvation. They did not respond because they were deaf to the gospel and they were blind to the gospel. That's Jesus' point. Jesus is confronting their hard hearts and unwillingness to believe. He faced a generation that was committed to ignoring and refusing truth. And our, our generation is getting more like that every day, ignoring truth, making fun of God's truth, and certainly not committed to it. I wonder if this got anyone's heart that day. I wonder if anyone said, you know what? He's right. He's right. God is trying to reach us, and we're not listening. Instead, they were saying, don't listen to John. The guy's clearly wacko and has a demon. Don't listen to Jesus. He's nothing more than a gluttonous drunk that hangs out with the wrong crowd. What happens according to how a person treats Jesus? The Bible's really clear. And the place I want to go there for that is John 3.36. What you do with Jesus means everything for eternity. And it says, He who believes in the Son, he means the Son of God in Jesus, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey and there's obedience to obeying, the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides, dwells, remains on him. You can trust Christ as your Savior and go to glory. It'll be celebratory. <laughs> or you can deny Christ and go to a place called hell. And one day, the holding tank of hell will be emptied into the lake of fire 
forever and ever and ever. This is an eternal decision that must be made. And Jesus is upset with the crowd because it doesn't matter what we do for you, folks. You don't listen. You don't care. I just wonder if somebody out there that God called and opened up their heart said, you know what? I may be the only one, but I, I care. And I hope that everyone in this room has at one time raised your hand and said, my world's going a different way, but Jesus, I believe in you. And I'm trusting you. And I understand what you're saying, and I believe it to be the truth. That's what we're supposed to be doing. No matter what they did, it wasn't working well. He faced a generation that was committed to ignoring him and refusing truth. And we don't know, it's not recorded, if anybody came to faith in him. Because everybody was saying, don't listen to the drunk and the glutton. Neither one of them have the truth. And the Bible says how you treat Jesus is going to determine your eternity and mine. So in the last part of verse 19, what happens will either confirm or deny the wisdom of any course of action. Jesus is saying, those who follow me will be vindicated and those who do not follow me are going to find out that they should have listened to me. And the deeds of those people are going to be shown at the uh, time of their judgment. Vindication means to render a favorable verdict or to justify somebody. The English definition means to be free from allegations and blame. Jesus knows that what he and John have done and will do in the future prove that they were right. Their deeds will be proven to be true. They'll be vindicated by God in what they were doing. And mostly, they also love people. That's why they're willing to put up with this stuff. An illustration of that would be just simply this. I, I try my very best. I've never, that I know, uh, done a funeral without telling people how they can get to heaven. And you do that by repenting of your sin, realizing you can't work your way into heaven. That's not possible. The Bible condemns that idea. But you have to trust that Jesus Christ paid for your sins on the cross and that he did it for you and he'll forgive you of your sins. And then you become a Christian. And I preach that at every funeral I, I ever get to do, or I don't do the funeral. And someday, some of the people that listened to that, those funerals and said, eh, don't need that, don't hear that, not going to do that, this guy's nuts, whatever they say, are going to someday stand before God in, in heaven. And God may ask them something like, how come you didn't believe what Greg told you you had to do? Because I was the messenger that day. And I don't know what you say to that. There is no good, good answer to that. You could say, well, I guess I'm a, I'm a genetic moron or I'm an idiot. I didn't listen. And then Jesus says, then depart from me. I never knew you. And you don't want to be in that crowd. What Jesus warns us about is true, and it will happen. On judgment day, all those who have loved and followed Jesus will be vindicated by the Lord. And in our applications, I want to show you a couple of those. First of all, number one, Hebrews 10, 29 to 31. We're applying this uh, after what we've talked about and seen in, in Christ's actions that day. Hebrews 10, 29 to 31. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified 
and has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord said, I will judge, will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jonathan Edwards wrote a, a sermon entitled, Just That. And it's one of the most famous sermons in, in American history. And yet people didn't listen to it. Wouldn't it be better to fall into the hands of a God who loves you and saved you? Absolutely. And you can have that if you repent of your sin and trust Jesus as your Savior. And then as far as uh, vindicating God's people, Deuteronomy chapter 32 and 30, and uh, sorry, yeah, verse 36. You want to follow with me there? Deuteronomy 32 and 36. Just three verses away from my uh, favorite passage, but anyway. Verse 36 says, For Yahweh will vindicate his people. That's you. You're hanging on to a truth the world doesn't like. You might preach a gospel that the people don't want to hear, and they might be mad at you for that, or whatever reason. Understand God will vindicate you one day. And the enemies of the gospel are going to have to admit you were right. And that's why he says the Lord will vindicate his people and he will have compassion on his servants when he sees their strength is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. God will step up and vindicate his people. And then the prophet Isaiah in uh, chapter 54. Isaiah 54 and verse 17. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of Yahweh, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. And the same truth is later in Revelation. God will vindicate his people for following him. Don't give up the message. Don't give up trying. If you don't think even anybody in the crowd is listening, don't give up. And finally this. We should not refuse the truth, so don't refuse the truth. Don't have a hard heart toward the only one, meaning Jesus, who can give you free of charge eternal life because God not only so loved the world, God loves you. Hell is a terrible place. It's forever. You don't want to go there. If you haven't said to Jesus, forgive me of my sins, I believe you died on the cross for me. And I'm trusting in that for forgiveness. Then I want to encourage you to do that. Because he loves you. And if you refuse him, you ignore him, and it doesn't matter what he does, plays the, the flute or the dirge, it doesn't matter what he does, you're not going to listen. Then John 3 told us what's going to happen. And God will keep his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can identify greatly with what you are teaching us through Jesus this morning. Uh, it seems like it's getting more and more difficult to reach people with the truth of the gospel, and there's more and more enemies of the gospel today. And I just pray that you would be with us not to give up and to keep playing the flute or singing the dirge, understanding that you use different methods to reach people. And we never know when you're going to open the heart of somebody to hear what we have to say and what we have to share. And Father, I pray that we would not be afraid to confront the sin of our, our world today like you confronted the people of your day. But may we do it in love as you did. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.